Hello, and welcome in to the show that rescued a cryptid of its own and raised it as part of its family. <laughs> it's Aliens After Dark. I'm your host, Icarus Kane. I'm Nova. And it is a pleasure to be with you today. Today's episode, we have our final episode of the Patterson-Gimlin film series. Uh, we're going to be discussing some of the scientific findings and, and really just what the scientific world has kind of said or, or imparted on what, what their analysis has been. Um, as far as the scientists that have actually analyzed <laughs> the uh, <laughs> the film. The problem with this is that most of the scientists won't even take a look at it. Um, but we'll get into that. So far we have done the first episode we really dove into the story and, and everything that happened. On the second episode uh, was the tale of two Bobs. We talked about Bob Hieronymus and Bob Gimlin and kind of their part in the story and then also Philip Morris the man who claimed to have made the costume and Bob Hieronymus the man who claimed to be the man in the costume and we are having trouble with our cat right now <laughs> she wants to get on the table non-technical difficulties <laughs> yeah biological difficulties <clears throat> Okay, mm -hmm. good. Lay down, find your spot. <laughs> and in episode three, we discussed the film and basically the analysis by the costume designers and experts in that field and what they had to say about the, quote, possible costume and, and the reality of what that might mean. So in this episode, we're going to be getting into what some of the other experts and scientists have to say and what their input is on the whole topic and then we'll get into our conclusions and kind of what we think after looking at all the evidence what we think of everything and and where we land so hope you enjoy i know that uh, i am ready to get this done and some of these topics, we like so far we've only done one episode for each topic, and this is our first multi-part episode or, or you know deep 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 dive on one individual subject or topic. I I do a lot of research on all of them on all the episodes that we've done so far, and I try to give you everything that. I find I try to not leave anything out. I try to give you the full picture and really just try to give you things that other podcasts do leave out and, and aspects that other podcasts don't cover. I, in each episode, I want to give you something that you're not going to hear in other places on other podcasts. Some podcasts that just give you kind of the surface story or whatever, but for this one, there's so much to discuss. There's so, it's so in-depth. And when I first started studying it, I just realized like there's so much to cover. It'll be a lot easier to do a multi-part series and little mini-series and cover it that way. But even then, there's so much that I'm leaving out. This is 
like we've mentioned before, one of the most, I think the second most analyzed film of all time, second to the JFK Zapruder film. That being said, because it's so scrutinized and so analyzed, it's there's so much information and so much scientific work done on this 56 or 59 second film. So you can kind of, you can go on forever seemingly with a topic like this. So there's definitely some things that we have had to leave out or couldn't cover, couldn't add into the full story or the full everything. So just take that into consideration. Some of, if you go out and do your own research, some of what you'll find may be different, maybe extra, maybe we didn't cover, and that's inevitable with this type of topic. There's so much to it that we can't, we could do an entire podcast just based on Bigfoot or the Patterson-Gimlin film. It seems like it could take that long. Um, so just take that into consideration. There will be some things that we don't cover and that we do leave out just because it, at some point it starts to get a little bit repetitive. And like I said, I do a lot of research, a lot of research to all of these topics and try to really give them the respect that they deserve. But I'm getting a little bit spent on the Patterson-Gimlin film. It's it's becoming very repetitive. Some of the work and research that's been done, some of what I've been reading and studying, it's just getting starting to get boring to me. <laughs> so I want to give you the, the full amount of what is important and what is interesting, at least what I think is important and inter- interesting so that you have the full picture. So to get started, tonight we'll dive into what the experts have to say. The main problem with this film, and a point of note for the skeptics, is that so few skeptics or specialists or experts have actually even weighed in on this topic. Most of the experts seem to be afraid of really just, I guess, the backlash that will come from even attempting to take on Bigfoot, you know, take take this seriously. It's kind of looked at like career suicide. So... I guess take that into consideration. A lot of these scientists consider this topic kind of taboo. Like most of them won't even touch it. And so a lot of the analysis that we do get ends up being on the positive side, I guess. A lot of the the negative analysis doesn't even come because they won't even look at it. So what tends to happen is some scientists who take it seriously will look at it be on the more positive side of this whole topic. And then the scientists that don't look at it will criticize what has been put out about it. And that's as much of their analysis, as far as their analysis goes. They just end up criticizing what little analysis has been put out by scientists who take it seriously because they themselves won't take it seriously. So just understand that like I'm not leaving out all of the negative analysis that's been done there just hasn't been much done because the people who are on the negative side of this coin won't really even look at it to begin with so 
there's just not a lot of negative science. It's basically like, this can't be real, so I'm not going to take it seriously. I'm not going to look at it because it can't be real. And that's just kind of their point of view. So they don't give it any any weight, any respect. So tonight we'll examine what few experts that have taken this evidence seriously have to say and ultimately where they land after their analysis. On one of our last episodes, we looked at Bob Hieronymus and Philip Morris, and at least to me, neither of their stories were compelling enough evidence to prove the PGF as a hoax. We've discussed the character of Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin, and good or bad, it's just circumstantial. So tonight we'll look at the empirical evidence and what can what actually can be said about it, whether bunked or debunked, what can be said about this, this empirical evidence, the film itself. It seems scientists have keyed on two main aspects of the film being analyzed. Patty's morphology, or her body shape and image, and the way that she walks. Basically, can a human recreate the walk exactly? And can a primate walk this way? Is it... Like, we can all go out in the backyard or in the woods and recreate and do our own recreation of the Bigfoot walk. We Most of us have probably done it. I've done it in the mm-hmm. woods, you know. <laughs> it, it's funny. You can do the walk. It's, it's something that you can uh, imitate. But... Really what science is looking at is, can a human exactly recreate this walk, this locomotion pattern? Which in turn, it really gets at the underlying aspect of all this. Is Patty more ape or is she more human? There are a few questions that science is trying to answer in their analysis. Are the movements on the film humanly possible? If not, then it's a real Bigfoot. If it is humanly possible, would Roger Patterson have known about these distinctions and locomotion patterns, and would he even have had the skills to pull it off? Just because it's humanly possible doesn't mean it's possible by these humans, is basically what we're looking at here. So keep that in mind as we go forward. So as far as the science goes, let's go back to the beginning. Um... November 1967, so this is a month after, you know, the film comes out and the sighting and everything. November 1967, Life magazine contacts Roger Patterson about basically doing a story on his film. But they want some of their own scientists to vet the film first and to analyze it and basically fact check it and make sure it is what it is. So Life arranges a screening at a... The American Museum of Natural History, I think it's in New York, and the scientists attending the screening seem to have already made up their minds before the viewing, basically that the film was a fake or a hoax. They they really just kind of had already made up their minds beforehand, before even seeing the film. They only viewed it once. They took no measurements, no further analysis. They didn't ask any questions. And they essentially told Patterson and Gimlin and Diatley that they weren't interested in looking at it any further, and that was that. You know, um, it seems 
very close-minded the way that you know this kind of all went down life magazine then you know took their report and then they asked for a second opinion for they went to the people at the bronx zoo and basically asked them to take a look at the film doing you know their due diligence like if, if this is a real bigfoot sighting they need to take it seriously because then they can be the ones to break the story you know Essentially, the people at the Bronx Zoo, they took it a little bit more seriously. They did a little bit of analysis and kind of questioned it. I think they saw it once or twice. Um, they asked some questions, and they, they took it a little bit more seriously, but ultimately they kind of denied it or turned it down as well. And after that, Life magazine lost interest and dropped the story completely. Uh, the people at the Bronx Zoo said that there was something wrong with the film but never really said what was wrong with it so it might just have been that they didn't want to be the ones to come out and say that they can't debunk it so it isn't real so basically it can't be real so there's something wrong with the film itself and that's the impression that i got from what they were kind of relaying to life magazine they didn't want to be the ones to say that they couldn't debunk it, so there must be something wrong with this altogether. So later in 1971, uh, Rene DeHinden gets the film, and he basically takes it around to get more scientists to take a look at it. Uh, he ends up taking it all over Europe, and he takes it eventually to Russia. And this is important because... In the United States, we get very, at least, especially at that time, even, I mean, we can, we all can see, you know, the way science is today, but in that time as well, it gets very close-minded. You have a lot of people who don't want to go against the grain, and like I mentioned, you have things like career suicide, like certain topics you don't want to be involved with because then you just look like you know, another one of these crazies or whatever, and you're not taken seriously in general. The rest of you, the work that you do isn't going to be taken seriously because you did some work on Bigfoot or whatever. And a lot of these scientists who do take, you know, take this seriously, they do get backlash and get treated poorly because they looked at this, you know, scientifically and seriously. They took it seriously. So, in other countries, though, however, it's not always the same way. Um, I know in Northwest Canada, like we mentioned on the last ep or uh, the a couple episodes ago, they take it a lot more seriously. It's it's a little bit more culturally culturally accepted, and it's something that the society as a whole is more comfortable with taking a look at. Similarly, there are some other countries that, that are more comfortable with this as well, and that includes Russia. For a long time, Russia has had kind of similar stories, similar sightings. They have a Bigfoot of their own. Um, I know that in Russia they have a Yeti, and then they have something called the Menk, which is spelled M-E-N-K. It's... Uh, it, it turns up in different places. I know if you, at some point, we'll do a story on the Dyatlov Pass, 
episode or um, the Dyatlov Pass story and the Menk gets brought up in that as one of the possible explanations for that and it's basically this hairy wild man from from Russia basically they're Yeti or Bigfoot and like I said in Russia they're a lot more accepting or understanding of the possibility of Bigfoot basically they see it as something physical and if it's physical it can be explained and then it can be it can be exploited in some way so they're much more open to figuring out what it is in their science now they may figure it out figure out what it is but <laughs> the way their government is they're not necessarily going to release those reports and and explanations to the public but they're interested in in figuring out what it is and to see if they can exploit it in some way dehinden ends up taking the film to the russian central scientific research institute of prosthetics and artificial limb construction they were very interested and after their study of the film they concluded that the creature was very very heavy based on how the arms swung and the weight when the foot came down basically their findings and they stated that bulk can be simulated but it's it's very difficult to hoax massive weight and then you have a guy coming in named uh you have a couple guys um you have igor bortsev Dmitry Bayanov and Dehenden. Um, so basically, Dehenden gives Bortsev and Bayanov. These are two prominent Russian. Um, I think they're. I th I don't know if they worked at that at that research facility or where they were working, but they're familiar with locomotion and and. I think prosthetics and, and things like that. So it gives them a copy of the film and a cast of the footprints. And Banov and Bortsev gave the evidence the respect it deserves. Um, they treated it seriously and offered an extremely in-depth analysis of the film. Now, again, they're in Russia, so they're not really subject to all of the negative implications of this that comes along with studying something like this. It's not so much career suicide for them and they're independent so they can release their findings as opposed to being part of, you know, a government type of thing. So this is important because they examined the film in the same time that it was made. And they had all the understandings of the current technologies that would have been needed to hoax this film at the time. So what basically what that means is like they lived in the same time. They would have known everything current to needed to hoax something like this. They were up to date on everything. After their detailed analysis, they concluded that the film passed their three criteria for basically consistency, naturalness, and distinctiveness saying that the PGF is an authentic documentary of a North American Sasquatch filmed in Bluff Creek in uh, October of 1967. So they, they looked at everything. Now, look, I'm not trying to convince you or to change your mind or to bring you to my side. Um, we at AAD 
Aliens After Dark. We just want to present you with all the details and the evidence on the topic or story. That way you can make up your own mind. We'll tell you what we think happened, but we're in no way trying to convince you of something. And generally, people believe what they want to believe. And that's just fine. But if you don't have all the evidence or the facts, we hope that we can kind of lay them out for you. Now, for those who say, you know, we need a body or I totally, you know, I totally understand that. Like, a lot of science won't take this seriously until you get a body. The problem is, that's not how science should work. And in a lot of other areas, that's not how science does work. If you need something physical to be able to study it or do science on it, then we shouldn't be able to do studies or science of Mars, you know, because all we're doing is looking at pictures of Mars and, you know... Saying it's real. And saying <laughs> it's real. Like, if, if it just creates this area of <clears throat> confusion or disbelief or, or disillusion, like... If you're going to study something based on photos, you have to basically give everything that that respect. And if you get a photo of rocks on Mars and that's what you're studying as empirical evidence to, you know, some research paper or something else, it has to be okay for you to study images of a Bigfoot or the Patterson-Gimlin film as real science. You can't just disregard one thing and accept another thing. It's just really contradicting and not hypocritical, but it, it just, it's cherry-picking, you know, to fit your own point of view or your own perspective. So Dehinden, Bayanov, and Bortsev they end up publishing a study together titled Analysis of the Patterson-Gimlin Film, Why We Find It Authentic. And one main point that comes out in the article is that the more anatomically correct a costume is, the harder it is to find somebody to fit it. And the more unnatural it'll look when someone doesn't fit it exactly, wears it, and tries to walk around in it. So basically... It's really hard to get something exactly anatomical that's not a human. And then you put a human inside of it, the more anatomically correct it is to this other creature, the more awkward it's going to look when a human's inside of this costume trying to, you know, mimic how it would walk. It would just look more awkward. Okay, so the next Russian scientist is uh, Dmitry Donskoy. Uh, he's the chief of the chair of biomechanics at the USSR Central Institute, Institute of Physical Culture, Moscow, Russia. Donskoy's analysis specifically detailed the movement of Patty, and he concluded that it demonstrated a fully spontaneous and highly efficient pattern of locomotion. So when it comes to Donskoy, he discussed the speed and the motion. To sum up some of his analysis, basically... For a man to make the same big strides like Patty for as long a distance, it would have looked like 
you were walking really fast or even jogging. So if you kind of imagine like to take these big strides and to keep it up for a long, you know, long distance, you have to be moving really quickly. It would have looked like you're almost like speed walking or light jogging, you know, like you're jogging without moving your arms in the same way. Um, You would have had to have the momentum to propel you, to keep you making those strides to cover that ground as quickly as Patty does. Essentially, if it were a human, there's not enough weight to make up the ground, so it would have to come as speed, which would be noticeable. So kind of step back and imagine, like, you're trying to take these big strides. If a human were to take those strides like the strides that big, the act of putting your foot that far in front of you would ultimately slow you down. Donskoy states that the weight of the creature is much heavier than man indicated by the movement. Basically, its weight is what's giving it its its momentum. For a human to have done that, we would have had to use speed to make up that momentum to, to cover that ground as quickly as what Patty does in the film. So... It would have looked like we're speed walking because we don't have the weight behind us to to propel us forward. But because Patty's so heavy and so massive, she uses her weight to propel her forward and cover that ground, ground as quickly with those big strides. If we were to be taking those big strides, we would have had to use speed to continue that momentum. So it it, it would have been noticeable that we were speed walking or, you know, we would have had to come up with that, that, um, counterbalance to propel us forward. And that would have been clear on the film if it was a human. So quote from Dr. Donskoy himself, with all the diversity of human gates, such a walk as demonstrated by the creature in the film is absolutely non-typical of man. Now, a lot of the scientists that end up criticizing the film they again they don't actually look at the film they usually end up picking apart the work of the few scientists that actually do the analysis without doing any themselves i kind of mentioned this earlier but again just so you don't think that we're not looking at any of the we're only looking at the positive analysis there's just not a lot of negative analysis done because these scientists won't you know take a look at the evidence or or do any actual actual analysis themselves I just want to kind of make that clear because it's not that we're not looking at the negative. It's just there's not a lot of negative. Most of the negative ends up coming from scientists picking apart work, uh, the work of Donskoy or DeHinden or some of these other guys who write research papers. Somebody will come and read that research paper and be like, oh, well, it can't be this because of this, this, and this, without really looking at the film itself. They just kind of look at what's been written and what the report is about the film. There are a few skeptical or negative looks at the at the film, um, but even then, they're not they're not fully like outright negative. They're just kind of more objective or more unbiased to the film, as far as to say like like when some of these guys analyze the film, they're not outright saying like, oh well, this is definitely a Bigfoot. They you know, reserve that judgment and they still leap open the option of it could be a hoax. We can't 
we can't prove that it's not a hoax. So they're not outright saying that it's Bigfoot, but their analysis tends to support something along those lines. So next you have um, Dr. W, Dr. D. W. Grieve. Uh, I think he was from London, uh, if I can remember correctly. And he was basically a biochemical expert, yeah, biochemical expert in London. And he says that if the film was shot at 16 or 18 frames per second, it would have absolutely been impossible for the creature to be a human. But if it was shot at 24 frames per second, a human could easily duplicate the walking pattern. This part's going to get a little bit, um, not drab, but a little bit, uh, a little bit dry. But the frames per second is really important. According to Dr. Grieve, if the film was at 16 frames per second, it is as if the creature or the man was executing a high speed motion or movement in slow motion. So they were they were moving really they were doing a fast motion slow. That's really really difficult thing to do. If the frame speed was at 24 frames per second, then the subject's walk and gait was similar to a man walking in at high speeds. So just walking quickly if it was filmed at a faster rate of speed. Roger, Roger Patterson claims that he filmed at 18 frames per second. Now, it was a Kodak K100 camera, and the camera doesn't have a setting for 18. It has a 16, and then its next one up is a 24. But you can kind of toggle, like it, it's not a, it's not a, you know, okay, so imagine a dial, and then you turn it to 16, it doesn't lock into place. You can kind of set it in between 16 and 20, and it's somewhere in between 16 and 20. I think eventually it comes out that, you know, somebody did some analysis on it, and it was basically proven to be about 19 frames per second. But either way, Patterson claims that he was right around, he claims that he filmed it at 18 some people say that he kind of misspoke and he meant to say 16 because that was one of the notches on his you know one of the places you could actually put the notch on the on the camera but again you can toggle it in between and he could have meant 18 you know it's it's all hearsay it's all conjecture dr grieve ends up concluding that he could see the muscle masses under the the fur and the skin and if it is a fake it's a really good one and that's kind of where a lot of these guys end up landing. And it's it's a familiar phrase in this whole study is like, if it's a fake, it's a good one. A lot of people say that because if it is a fake, it's the best fake or hoax of all time. The possibility of a fake cannot be ruled out because a man could have sufficient height and suitable proportions to mimic the longitudinal dimensions of the Sasquatch. However, the shoulder width and arm length would be difficult to make look natural when walking. Now, going back to the frame rate for a moment, this is very important because according to the scientists that have analyzed the film, some that we have mentioned, if it was filmed at 16 or 18 frames per second, it could not have been duplicated by a human. It's 
just important to keep that in mind. A lot of these guys are coming back to, if it was filmed at 16 or 18 frames per second, it could not have been duplicated by a human. Dr. Bortsev, one of the guys we spoke about just a minute ago, he landed on 16 frames per second when he analyzed it. And then Dr. Grover Krantz, we had mentioned him in one of the last episodes, Using Bortsev's work, he kind of went further and did his own work, and he came up with about 18 frames per second. And we had mentioned, you know, Grover Krantz before, but he basically started... He started out with the film not believing in it. But once he analyzed it, he analyzed the walking pattern and the motion of the creature, and he changed his position and ends up becoming a proponent of the film altogether. He eventually wrote a book called Bigfoot Sasquatch Evidence, and this is kind of where he explains a lot of what we mentioned in the last, uh, one of the last episodes where Dr. Green kind of uses Grover Krantz's work and he, he, he explains all of his work, all the work that he had done. It's in his book. So this is where he talks about the thing, uh, the creature, you know, she walks like a male. She has the sagittal, why she has the sagittal crest and basically it's important and in, in basically why the the sagittal crest is important and you know signs that the patterson gimlin film is not a hoax you can check out one of our last steps i think it's episode two where we explain these findings in the book and he kind of discusses you know the hair the fur on the breasts and we go over the details of like you know, why she walks like a male, why humans have different walks because, you know, our babies come out with bigger heads, so our women have different sh um, shaped hips, and our women walk differently. But when it comes to animals, they don't necessarily have those same distinctions, and it would make sense that she walks more like a male. It would also seem, you could say that it seems more like a host, hoax if she walked like a female because humans are the only creatures to have that differentiation so a lot of this you can kind of go both ways you can kind of say oh well she walks more like a male so it must be a hoax oh well she walks more like a female that could be a hoax too like it, it just it's very um kind of what based on what your perspective is or what your cognitive bias is so Krantz also noted that the shoulder width is 28 inches, making them 35% of the standing height, which is estimated at 78 inches, or about 6 feet 6 inches. Bob Hieronymus had a shoulder width of about 27.4% ratio to standing height. Now, again, Patty's ratio to standing height was 35%. Bob Hieronymus had a, had a big shoulder shoulder width ratio to standing height at about 27.4%. To give you a little perspective, Andre the Giant was at 24% to standing height ratio. So Hieronymus was a little bit bigger than Andre the, Andre the Giant just in that ratio, but Patty was 35%. That's, that's really un heard of in humans i think he said one in uh 
I think it's like one in 58 million or 5,800,000. I don't remember. It's a huge number, like one in a large number. One in a large number of people have this type of ratio or the probability of having this type of ratio. Next, uh, the scientist that we're going to take a look at is Jeff Glickman. Uh, Glickman wrote a report on his research titled Toward a Resolution of the Bigfoot Phenomenon. It was published in 1998, and Glickman basically came up with 11 points of findings, which they're all compelling, but we're going we're gonna to look or detail a couple of the important ones, the ones that at least stand out to me. I think I have about seven or eight. So in Glickman's research, first he, he notes the measurements. So um, you have the height. He measures the height at 87 and a half inches. He measures the weight, the waist at 81.3 inches, the chest at 83 inches, the weight <laughs> at 1,957 pounds, so almost 2,000 pounds. Uh, he measures the arm length at 43 inches and the leg length at 40 inches. Uh, number two, Nothing was found indicating that the creature was a man in a suit, like no zippers, no seams, no no bunching of fabric. Uh, number three, the hand movement indicating flexion in the hands, which is which must have been supported by a flexion in the arm. Um, if there was an extension in the suit, it would have had it would have had to have required some kind of robotics or animatronics, which was probably beyond the technology of that time. Um, number four, he notes the Russians' findings of the similarity of the foot cast and the the creature's foot were confirmed. So basically what what he notes here is that the creature in the film made the prints that were casted. It didn't. It didn't come along later, and somebody like laid these footprints down with a with some kind of mechanical, you know, whatever footprint machine or or you know some wooden planks that are carved in the shape of a foot. It didn't happen later. They basically determined that what was in the film, the creature that was in the film, made the prints that the casts were made of. Basically, the same foot in the film made the prints. They weren't done separately. Um, next, number five, the rippling fat or flesh on the creature's right side is observed indicating that the costume is highly improbable, that a costume is highly improbable. Again, this is studying the empirical evidence itself, and this is what real scientists who are taking a real look at this are coming up with. Number six, uh, the creature's foot undergoes flexion like a real foot. An artificial leg would have had that could have supported a flexion of a foot was probably beyond the technology of that time. So again, this is another thing that you, you can see the, the, the genuine flexion in the foot as it lifts up the front of the, the toes kind of raise up like a normal foot does when it's walking and when it lands. You know, it does all of the flexion and mobility that a normal foot would do. And to create an artificial foot, you would also have to create an artificial leg that could 
support these types of flexions, and that was probably beyond the technology of that time. Number seven, the appearance and sophistication of the creature's musculature are beyond costumes used in entertainment in the in the entertainment industry. Uh, Glickman states that the Patterson-Gimlin film cannot be demonstrated to be a forgery or a hoax at this time. Basically, he's saying that while he's not ruling out a hoax, he can't say definitively that this is hoaxed. He's basically just saying that a lot of this is saying that, like, we don't have the technology at this time to create these types of things. We don't have the ability shown in the entertainment industry to create these types of costumes and it's just hard to believe that it is a hoax we can't show that it is definitively a fake now one thing that's important is a lot of these scientists disagree with each other's work uh, when it comes to like weights and heights and scales and proportions they often differ some scientists say six feet tall, some say eight feet tall, some say seven feet, some say 7.3. It's all kind of different. And it all stems from like whatever, whatever height you're determining, that'll kind of skew the weights that you're getting and the other dimensions of your estimates. So if you say that it's eight foot tall, then your weight's going to be higher as well. Then your, you know, your chest length is going to be higher. And a lot of this, to do it properly, you need the creature to be standing at full height, you know, on flat ground. Those are hard things to do because it's never really, it never really stands straight up on flat ground in the film. It's always, the whole time it's walking, it's a little bit hunched over, it's on uneven ground, ground and it's moving through, you know, a rocky, um, wooded area. So it's hard to determine exactly the height and, and these dimensions. So these are all just kind of estimates. So ultimately the scientists are a bit all over the place when it comes to these kind of measurements, but they all agree so far that it cannot be definitively proven to be a hoax. At the end of the day, some may say that it's really tall, not as tall, really heavy, not as heavy, you know, whatever. They're, nobody's disagreeing that this is definitely a hoax. We can prove it. It's hoaxed. And that's, you know, that's it. It's over. For one, nobody disagrees that the film was tampered with. And for two, nobody can prove that it's a hoax definitively. So just kind of keep that in mind going forward. But uh, let's uh, let's take a break real quick. And we will come back and kind of dive into our conclusions and what we think on you know the reality of of this whole the whole thing all the evidence everything that we've discussed and found and really dive into what we think and where we land on what we've uncovered so take a second if you need to put something in the air or in your lungs or <laughs> get some uh, turkish coffee and uh, we'll be right back after these tunes
And we're back. Thanks for listening to our tune. <laughs> yes, welcome back to Aliens After Dark, or on today's episode, Cryptids at Dusk. <laughs> So, so far we've gone through a lot. Kind of beat this horse to death here. Uh, we have talked a lot about a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's really a lot more science and a lot of books and a lot of in-depth analysis that you can kind of go into. It honestly, at least this part of the research got a little bit dry for me and a little bit boring. I didn't want to bore you guys, so if there's any more, you know, that you want to do or research you want to do, there's definitely, we've mentioned books throughout this and different resources that you can take a look at. I definitely recommend the Roger Patterson, Chris Murphy book that we've mentioned. Um, the book by Bill Munns is definitely a great resource. Um, also, you know, the books by Grover Krantz or any of these reports by, you know, Bortsev or Bayanov or um, DeHinden. Uh, there's been reports by Dr. Grieve and uh, Jeff Glickman. I think he wrote a report or a book. I can't remember right now, but they're all definitely like really great resources. Um, also, one resource that I've used a little bit of is um, the podcast astonishing legends they do a six-part series on this and i'll be honest a little bit big gets a little bit repetitive and the part on the science was it it's just so much so much that it just gets a little bit dry or a little bit boring to me sitting there listening to it or sitting there reading through it it's it's a lot of just like really technical scientific jargon and it kind of gets some of it goes over my head some of it gets a little bit lost but I didn't want to bore you guys with all of that so I really just try to give the significant aspects of some of these scientific findings and, and really the important stuff that some of this some of this has come out with but that being said all of this you know, research that we've done, what do you think? What do you think about all of this? And wait, let me guess. <laughs> Don't spoil it. <laughs> okay, what do you think? Well, I think that you're kind of right that there's like not a lot of negativity around it. So it's hard for me to see two sides of it. And I want to believe that that was Patty. I I think it was a video documentation of Patty. And, you know, I'm not like knees deep in the mud of belief, but I like to think that everything that we've talked about today means something, you know, more than this is a just a hoax. What do you think? You can go ahead and tear it to shreds. <laughs> As per usual, you tend to be more on the believing side, but that is why I love you. Mm -hmm. 
but I've written a little bit about this so in conclusions so often you go into some of these topics or we start looking at some of these things and we think one thing at the beginning and once we dive into it we kind of realize that there's much more under the surface um, one thing that's pleasantly surprising to me was that it's not so much about the data or the evidence of the film it's it seems like it's more the implications of what it means if this is not a hoax um, basically is patty more a man or more an ape and what does that mean for us as homo sapiens and evolution in general I think looking at the film alone empirically, you still can't rule out that it's a hoax. Um, pretty much every scientist that looks at this either starts or ends with that detail. Like, we can't definitively prove that it's a hoax. We can't rule that out that it's a hoax. But when you add everything up and you think about every aspect of this, could Roger Patterson have pulled this off and let's just take a second let's think back to all the skills that he would have needed right so he would have had to have an understanding of primates of primate locomotion of primate mechanics he would have had to have an understanding of primate anatomy um, you know the way they walk the way they look the way they evolve he would have had to have understandings like things like adding breasts or adding a sagittal crest um, he would have had to have elite skills in costume making, like sewing or stitching or the use of cutting-edge costume technology, um, excuse me, meticulous fur or hair placement. Uh, he would have had the time, he would have needed to have the time to create and hide these things from others, you know, like if he was doing all of this, it would have had to pretty much be in private where his own wife didn't know, his own friends and family didn't have any clue that he was perpetrating this hoax. Um, and these, these costumes still to this day fool experts. So it would again have to have been the best hoax ever created. Uh, he would have needed the funding, almost unlimited funding, to put together something better than you know, the budget of a Hollywood film at that time. He would have had, he would have needed to have the funding for all of his studies and all of his materials needed. And again, step back and, and think about this. In an age without internet, how did he learn all of these skills? Also, without anybody having any idea that he was a master primatologist and a master uh, costume maker and designer and a master, you know, film documentarian you know he, he would have had to have the funding to learn all these things and he didn't have access to things like the internet so somebody would have had to taught him he would have had some masters teaching him the ins and outs of these types of skills where are they why have these people never come forward you know who taught him these master skills what is the likelihood that anyone could pull this off you know like even Hollywood can't do what he did today what he did back then they can't do it today 
only with CGI, with the help of CGI, can you make things look so real. And even then, next to real actors, it looks too real. Like I, I know that like there's a lot of um, there's a lot of people that criticize CGI and stuff and how it looks so fake in movies. But like I think what they're what they're really getting at is that it looks too real. It looks too perfect and when it's next to things that aren't cgi like actual actors or you know other parts of the set that aren't you know cgi the cgi itself looks more real than what is not cgi so that's how you're kind of differentiating oh it's so fake because it's so real it's so stylized or it's so you know uh saturated with color or whatever the sunset is so perfect that like it's clearly CGI and those things stand out. But even with the help of real CGI, that's really the only way that we can make things look so real these days. If you step back and you think about like the best evidence of Hollywood costume making today, I would say like take a look at like Vecna from Stranger Things. Like that's a level of costume making that Roger Patterson achieved in 1967 like that costume it's like silicone flesh and they you've seen the videos of it right yeah I've seen them it's like they put all these different like pieces of skin and they basically build this costume on the on a what's his name James Campbell he's got like a three three name name james something campbell but um he's a great actor you know seems like a cool actor but uh they show these videos of you know him getting his costume and everything put on and it's like from head to toe they they do all this makeup and they put all these like silicone flesh parts on him and even if you look at like uh the walking dead if you look at the walking dead like all the zombie makeup and and you know, costumes and stuff that they do to make zombies in that movie. It looks so real. And that's probably, you know, these are the heights of our costume and makeup abilities now. He made a costume in 1967, if it was a costume. He made it in 1967 that rivals what we are capable of doing today. Now, it's not as detailed as, you know, like zombies and and flesh and blood and, you know, all this that they put in Vecna or they put in The Walking Dead or any of these zombie movies, but it's still, we're not able to create something that is so realistic or so realistically ape-like today. I know you take a look at like Harry and the Hendersons, one of the scariest movies of all time. (laughs) (laughs) I know oh when we did goodness. our Halloween episode, we talked about oh. scary movies, and I totally spaced on mentioning this, but if you're at home, go back and watch the opening scene of Harry and Henderson, and it starts out like a fucking horror movie, I swear to God. It's like this eerie, scary music, and this car, it's basically how it opens is is like... You know, this family had went camping and they end up finding a Bigfoot. They hit it with their car and then they put it on top of their car and bring it home. I don't know. It's fucking stupid. But um, they, the whole opening, you know how movies in the 80s and 90s, 
even earlier they have like a five minute soundtrack of the opening movie where they're like playing the opening credits through this like scene of what's happening they do it a lot in cartoons and and disney movies but that was like a style that all a lot of the movies had they would have like this like five to ten minute song or like soundtrack in the very beginning where nothing's really happening it's just showing you know whatever and in harry and henderson's it's showing a car driving through the woods and it is fucking scary it sets up a scary vibe like at least to me like it sets up something that is really eerie and it's showing like this dark forest with this kind of eerie music behind it and just watch the opening scene and you know message us and tell us if you get that vibe of like this is starting out like a fucking horror flick (sighs) but anyways Uh, Harry and the Hendersons was made in 1987, so 20 years after, you know, the Roger Patterson 1967 film, and that costume was the best that Hollywood could do, and it still looks cartoonish. Like, the head, I think they make comments about the head that they had to create for it to be proportionally correct was huge, and it has animatronics in it that allow the eyes to blink and, and... you know, open and close, and the, I think the eyebrows raise up at different points or different inflections, and you can kind of, you know, make different facial expressions work on this on this animatronic type helmet that the guy wears. That was the best that we could do twenty years after this film was made. So it just doesn't make sense that it when you add it all up, it makes it really hard to believe that it was a hoax. Now, regarding Patterson's character, even if he was a lifelong con man, you can't disregard the evidence itself. Most of the experts, none of the experts, sorry, none of the experts who have analyzed the film, whether it's costume experts, film experts, anthropologists, primatologists, any of these guys, none of them have ever cared about Patterson's character because it doesn't matter. The evidence itself stands alone. That's what these people are, these experts are taking a look at. That's what they're interested in either, you know, debunking or proving as a hoax or whatever. Nobody brings up the fact that Patterson's character was a little bit off. No experts do. Again, we talked about Greg Long's book and it's worth a read, but he's one of the main guys and a lot of these skeptics, that's where they'll kind of gravitate to is picking on his character but when you actually get experts looking at the empirical evidence none of them bring up the fact that you know Patterson had a little bit sketchy of a character because it doesn't fucking matter what matters is is the film a hoax can we prove that the film itself is a hoax and if we can't can we prove that this is a real Bigfoot when somebody comes back from a trip in the woods and they say you know they share like some tall tale of Bigfoot or, you know, oftentimes people say, oh, well, you know, where's the proof? Show us a picture, show us a video. Well, here it is. Like now science has something to look at and they turn around and say, well, show us a body. (laughs) Like it's, again, it goes back to that thing with Mars. Like you can't look at Mars and study Mars just based on the pictures because we don't have the rocks here physically. We can't prove that it's, real these pictures could be from fucking arizona like 
you know, why aren't people taking that point, I guess. And I'm not asking people to take that point and create that conspiracy because, you know, I trust NASA to an extent and I trust the work that they're doing, you know, for the most part, like, but it's just a big contradiction. As far as like cognitive closure goes, you know, you have, you have things that come out like the Philip Morris or Bob Hieronymus and people just end up looking at that or hearing about that and being like, oh, okay, well, this whole thing was a hoax because, you know, I did it myself. I'm guilty of that myself. Like, oh, well, this happened, so it must have been a hoax. But then when I looked into it further and really dove into it, so much didn't add up. Like we talked about Hieronymus, his knee to ground ratio was impossible for him to be patty. Not only that, what he said, the costume that he wore, didn't line up with the costume that Philip Morris said that he created. Not only that, if you're Philip Morris and you created this costume, it behooves you to recreate another costume to prove that you're the guy who did that. Because then that just brings Hollywood right at your doorstep saying, hey, we're doing another ape film, we're doing another monkey film, or whatever. We need you to create us a costume that's super realistic and you're, you know, you start making tons of money. Like it it behooves you to do that. And that was never done. He never presented a costume that matched anything like the Patterson Gimlin film. So that alone is just like something that stands out to me. Like, oh, there's all these people that are claiming to have been a part of this hoax, but none of them can prove and openly won't prove or openly contradict themselves into proving that they weren't part of what was actually a hoax. And one thing that's important to understand, I think, like, why is it so hard for people to accept Bigfoot? Like, when it comes to, like, UFOs, people are readily able and willing to accept, you know, life out there maybe not aliens on earth but even science accepts the possibilities of life in outer space what about ghosts you know people generally may not admit to believing in ghosts but you know they themselves it's much more widely accepted i think than something like a bigfoot you know and the whole paranormal like theories like they help with us answering a lot of questions of you know, that we may have about life after death or explaining experiences that we can't necessarily explain in the moment, like hearing footsteps in your house or, you know, poltergeist type things. Like we don't necessarily have an explanation for it. So we attribute it to, oh, it must be ghosts. It must be something paranormal when there might be an actual explanation for it. We just can't figure that out right now, or we don't have the technology to really understand our science isn't at the point where it really understands what is actually going on. But when it comes to Bigfoot, a big hairy hominid creature in the forest, you know, of Washington or something, you know, Northwest, North Pacific Northwest, like no way, you know, like people, I don't see why people have such a problem with it. And I think it speaks to our pride. I think that there can't be, anything close to us on the food chain or even like like you think about like creationism you know god chose us and 
we're the intelligent species. Like, I think that these things come into play of why we have such a problem with believing in something like a Bigfoot or taking it seriously. Maybe not believing. Like, I hate that term. Like, I believe in UFOs or I believe in Bigfoot. Like, I don't want to believe. I want it to be real. I don't want to believe in something or have faith that it's out there. I want science to take it seriously and prove to me that this is something that exists or prove to me that it doesn't exist. If you can, you know, it's up to science to figure that out. And a lot of people say like, you know, the, um, burden of proof is on the person with the, with the, uh, extraordinary claim. And I understand that. And that holds weight. It makes sense. But if the people who have the skill set to prove or disprove something refuse to do it, well, then where are we at, you know, as a society? How do we move forward in proving something if the average person believes it but doesn't have the skill set to prove that burden of proof, you know? Like, I think a lot of, I think a lot of Bigfoot sightings are probably bullshit. And maybe not intentionally bullshit. I think some of them are. There's a lot of people that just want attention. I think that it's such a culturally, you know, accepted type of phenomenon, like, in in these specific cultural communities. Like, you get things, like, on Discovery Channel or History Channel, and you get to be on these types of shows, or, you know, it's kind of pop culture-y, but it's not, like, scientific culture. Like, it's not, like, accepted scientifically think people want the attention that comes along with that as an average person again scientists don't want that attention but it is what it is i think a lot of people want attention and then i think there's a lot of people who just misidentify different things i think they see something very quickly that may be a bear walking you know 600 yards away you know a couple football fields away in the woods and you see it walking upright for a few seconds and then it disappears in the woods and it felt like it was moving a lot quicker than you realized and you're not familiar with being in the woods and so you misidentify something or you see a moose or you see you know something that you can't necessarily describe and in your mind sometimes it, you just misidentify it it goes to a bigfoot or a slender man or you know a skinwalker or whatever like even like misidentifying ufos as lights or things that we don't understand or don't know that's why i'm doing a whole series on ifos like there are things that we misidentify all the time and i think that's where a lot of people have problems with like there's so many sightings and this that and the other and i just think that bigfoot gets misidentified a lot it gets perpetuated people want attention but I think there are a few circumstances here and there where people are actually coming up with real evidence and it needs to be taken seriously by science and it's not. Ideally, if we can just get, you know, a couple guys who, like this guy Todd Standing, like if you really have been seeing these Bigfoots, man, I don't want to hear your stories anymore. I know like scientists... Like, science is at this point, too, but, like, it's like, I don't want to hear your, your sightings and your stories and these weird, po they, they look kind of fake, like, his stuff, but, like, your films and documentaries that you do, or people do, like, could be reenactments, could be this and that, could be whatever, <clears throat> like, 
if it's real and you know where they're at, go shoot one with a tranquilizer or like 10 tranquilizers, whatever it takes to knock this guy out and bring his ass in for science to like not be able to refute it. Like if you, if it's so provable and you're so sure that it's a real thing, science isn't clearly, they've made it clear that they're not going to take or accept video footage. And that's, that's just how it is. It sucks. And I don't think it should be like that, but that's how it is. So go out there and knock it up with some ketamine and bring its ass in. And like they have elephant tranquilizers, like go knock something out and bring it in. I don't know. I mean, do whatever you need to do to fully prove it. And then let's release it back into the wild, back to where it was, you know, taken from. Let's do the right thing. Let's not like subject it to scientific experiment. We don't need all that shit. But if we can prove that it exists, then science will take it seriously. Then they can go out and tranquilize their own and do all the experience they experiments they need to do. Same shit we do with like sharks and fucking, you know, wolves and bears and whatever like you can try i guess to put on like trackers and see where their movements go and this that and the other you can do all that science but you have to prove that it's a real thing first and i think that it it just lands on the point that science needs a body let's get it a body we don't have to kill it i used to think we had to kill something and bring it in and you know then they would have irrefutable evidence but I'm, I don't like that. I don't like having to like snuff out a life just to prove science wrong. Like let's tranquilize it. We're modern man. <laughs> like we have these technologies of where we can capably bring something in without having to kill it and then release it, you know? So, I mean, we don't even have to put like these big trackers on it. Like they put chips in our dogs. Mm-hmm. to like it's 2022 like they put chips in our, or 2023 they put chips in our dogs that like if you lose your dog you can find your dog we can put a chip in it and we can knock out a bigfoot put a chip in it and then we can track where it goes like we have these we have this technology i'm basically where i land on this is you can't rule out that it's a hoax with all of this evidence added up I don't think Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin were capable of perpetuating this hoax. They don't think they have the skill set to do it. So I'm just like, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ultimately, I'm like, I want it to be true. I want to believe it, just like you. Like, I want it so badly to be true. But I just get hung up on the fact that, like, hoax can't be ruled out, and that's fine. Let's go get one, trank it, bring it in for science, and prove it, you know? So I don't know. That's where I land on it. So that's it for our Patterson-Gimlin film, our first cryptid four-part series. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope you got a lot out of it. I hope it kind of laid everything out and gave you all the the details of the full picture of the story because it's there's a lot 
and there's a lot more to go into if you want to do more research on your own. And yeah, I think uh, our next podcast is going to be, I think we're going to be doing something a little bit existential. I think you wanted to do um, basically (laughs) what is life (laughs) and different theories on life or life after death. And we might talk about, you know, simulation theory and just kind of something kind of a little bit more laid back and a little bit more fun and just theories of, you know, different, different. What is even going on here? Yeah. <laughs> What's really going on here? Um, so I think that might be our next episode. So uh, if you enjoyed this episode, we would love to hear from you. Uh, our email address is aliensafterdark, the number nine, at gmail.com. And we'd really love to hear from you. We read all of our emails. And for those of you who have been emailing us, uh, thank you. And, you know, we love your feedback. It's, you know, makes us smile when we get new emails. You know, every couple of days we check it. And it's really nice to hear from you guys. So we really appreciate that. If you have any questions or any comments about these episodes or anything that we left out that you think we should, you know, comment on in one of our next episodes, definitely let us know. And yeah, thank you for, uh, for giving us your ears for the, for this, uh, four part series. But, uh, yeah, keep looking up because it's always dark somewhere and, uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.